Yeah, in our church, it's great to be together. Um, I was hoping that it would be a little bit warmer up in the floodlights, and it is, so I'm feeling good about that. Um, give me a thumbs up if you're feeling warm enough. Yeah, it's good. I actually wanted to start by talk, talking about um, wearing the right clothes. I, I was regretting not wearing more layers. Um, have you ever watched one of those reality TV shows where someone gets a makeover, where they get kind of given new clothes? Um, I, I haven't really either, but there was one I remember growing up. Um, I remember seeing at least this, this kind of sign for it. Um, looks a, a bit kind of dated now, but it was called What Not to Wear. And it was a very simple premise. Each episode, someone would be nominated for a makeover. Throughout the show, they'd be given a new wardrobe and a new haircut. And then by the end of the episode, they'd have a new style that kind of was supposed to complement and show off their, their beauty that was always there. And people loved it, in part, I think, because of that idea that, you know, that everyone has their version of beautiful. Um, you just need to work out kind of the style that complements that. You might be, you know, really beautiful, um, but it was the question of which clothes are going to show off that beauty and which ones are going to hide it away. Uh, well, Christianity is really beautiful, stunningly beautiful. But to our shame, many Christians in Australia, especially in the public square, have been living in ways that, that, that detract from that, that hide that away, and not living lives that kind of adorn and affirm our beliefs, but ones that, um, that, that hide away the, the, the beauty and the goodness of Christianity. And this, this really matters. In a McCrindle survey of faith and belief in Australia in 2018, um, they were asked, people were asked kind of what are the, the negative influences um, for, about Christianity for you. For those that were described themselves as warm to Christianity, the top three things that stopped them from taking that next step were, were, were these. Number one, church abuse. Number two, religious wars. Number three, judging others. Do you see the common thread that ties those three together? They're all about kind of the way that Christians behave. On the other hand, when, when people were asked what attracts you to investigating religion and spirituality, I have a look at what, what the number one thing they said, the thing that strongly attracts me to, to religion and spirituality is this, is seeing people who live out a genuine faith. Now, do you see the picture that survey's painting? That the, the way that Christians live is a key for how Australia engages with faith. Christians can kind of live in a way that, that affirms and adorns the gospel, uh, or they can live in a way that kind of detracts, takes away, hides away the beauty and the goodness of what we believe. Well, the book of Titus is all about the relationship between a Christian's doctrine and their practice. We've seen in recent weeks the importance of a doctrine that leads into good practice, a, a life that is informed by what we believe, or a life where faith is lived out. If you remember back a couple of weeks ago, the emphasis for elders... Actually, we, we did, sorry, we did it all in one week, didn't we? Last week, the emphasis for elders um, was that their lives would be blameless, that they wouldn't just be good at doctrine, but that that belief would, would lead into good practice. But on the other side, we had kind of false teachers rising up in the church who had lots of fine-sounding things to say, but whose actions, said he said, undid what they taught. And because their doctrine didn't lead to good lives that like it should. Well, in today's passage, we're showing the other side of that coin. Not only does good doctrine lead into good practice, but good practice affirms and adorns good doctrine. In other words, the Christian life 
and when everything is as it should be, is living proof of the goodness of the gospel. And I'll explain that sentence uh, in a bit more detail as we go through, but um, come with me to verse 1. that kind of sets the tone for what we're about to read. He says, as opposed to the, the, um, the, the false teachers who um, have come in with dishonest motives and, and talking um, nonsense, mean, meaningless talk and deception, he says, you, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. So that's where we're headed now. He's, he's shifted gears. He's now talking, going to talk about what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Uh, the word sound there, it, it, it's the same word used in other parts of the gospel. Where, um, when Jesus heals people back to health, the, you know, the men went away and, and found his servant sound. Well, everything was working properly again. Or in the parable of the prodigal son, when the father is so concerned for his son who's gone missing, who, who could be hurt or sick or malnourished, he celebrates when he returns because he has returned safe and sound. That's the same word here. Sound, sound means anything uh, without any ill health or malfunctioning. It describes the whole system properly functioning. And so sound doctrine describes an entirely healthy system of belief, one that is holistic and not hypocritical, where there's not kind of um, inconsistencies or, or falsehoods. And I suppose the danger for them in Crete, Crete was a place where Christianity was brand new, right? Paul was, was writing to Titus to help him to establish the very first churches there. And I suppose the danger for them was that Christianity would, would just be accepted, take its place among the other religions in, in the long line of religions there in Crete. But in the end, it would just be that, just another religion, different God, different book, but, but the same lives. But Paul, uh, so I suppose that the danger for them is that um, Christianity would be accepted but not kind of lived out. So Paul says you need to show them what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Spell it out. Sh show people what it means. Show them how someone marked by grace would live differently. And so that's the task for us today, to consider what kind of lives are appropriate to sound doctrine. Today, as we move through Titus, that the focus moves off of the teachers in the church and onto the people. We, we start to get granular as he breaks it down into groups to work out what it might look like for certain people to live out sound doctrine. And so that's the, the plan for today. We'll, we'll kind of fly through, have a brief look at each of the six groups that he speaks to, and then we'll come back and look at some of the binding principles that filter through them all. So as we dive into the, the details of instructions to various groups, um, it's worth remembering this isn't just a list of rules. Paul's describing what would be a sound appropriate to sound doctrine but first he addresses the older men now this is not necessarily elderly men it's kind of a comparative those who are older those that older than others i suppose that there's no set age limit uh, in fact you might be right in the middle you might in some contexts be older some contexts others that the point is not to kind of um you know strictly work out with, where you fit but to, to, to work out how to live out the gospel um, so if you're someone who people might look up to in age, here's, here's what people, putting the doctrine into practice might look like for you. Read with me from verse 2. He says, Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled and sound in faith, in love and in endurance. Now, older men who are living out the gospel ought to carry themselves with dignity and with maturity. Dignified in that you aspire to be t temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, 
as others look to you, they, they shouldn't see someone who's brash, short-tempered, erratic, who, who's, whose temper is shortening as they, they age, but someone who's dignified. And they, shouldn't, and they should see someone who's mature, sound in your faith. There's that word again. Um, sound in your faith, in your love, and in your endurance. Um, those are three great measures for you as, as to how are you going at maturing. How's your faith? Is it, is it sound? Is every part functioning as it should? No, no part kind of inconsistent or diseased or malnourished? How's your love? Are, are you loving those around you as you love yourself? Are you loving God with your whole heart and mind and soul and strength? How's your endurance? Are you, are you still, after all these years, pressing on in faith? After, um, are you striving to, to take hold of that for which Christ has prepared you? Well, those are the marks of grace in the life of an older man. It's what doctrine looks like in practice for them. And from there, he moves on to, to address the older women. And like older men, you don't need to be elderly, but you might be older than others. So read, read with me from verse 3. He says, Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live. That, that word reverent, it's the root word, it's almost like, a, like priestly, bringing the presence of God to people, um, representing God and representing godliness in the way that you live. Um, reverent in the way they live, not, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Now, the island of Crete, you may remember, had a reputation for being a place of debauchery and wildness. And so it's no surprise that's what's being emphasized here. The Christians ought to stand out from the culture around them. And you can imagine it being a, a beautiful thing. The, the older woman who doesn't, you know, go out and act like a teenager who, who's um, just, you know, living for whatever pleasures she can, but who, who carries herself, sorry, teenagers, that's not, <laughs> doesn't mean it like that. Um, someone who carries herself with purpose, with reverence, who doesn't join in all the talk and gossip and who shows a deliberate self-control with her, with her words and with her... Um, with, a, uh, with wine as well. And then finally, uh, the next line is particularly exciting for me. It says, but teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women. Um, do, you, do you hear that, that connection there between older and younger? Uh, um, they're to be both models and teachers of the younger generations. As a kids and youth minister, I love to see kind of different generations interact. Um, and I love this because it says, if you're an older woman in the church, you ought to have some level of interest in, in the younger women in our church. It doesn't need, need, mean you need to be a kids leader, but it d- does mean you should consider in your model and in your words how you can help the next generations of young Christians to grow up trusting and following Jesus and living out the, the, the beliefs that they profess. Every church needs older women who will model godliness and teach godliness to the next generations. Uh, he goes fr- from there um, into, to address the young women um, so moving down in your boxes on your pages now, he says, then they can urge the young, younger women to love their husbands and children. Um, the assumption, of course, there is that they, they have a husband and children. That's one reason I, I can't use this verse to ask you to be a kid's leader. He's obviously not talking about younger women as in children. Um, but it also doesn't capture everyone. There, there would be, of course, many unmarried young women in the church, and there'd be childless married women in the church, but he's talking to the majority here. And there's assumption, and the, the other assumption is that you need to be taught how to love. I think we can sometimes think love is automatic. Um, as someone who's both a husband to someone and a, and a child to someone, um, might be tempting for me to think that love should be automatic, surely. Uh, but no, I, I know that uh, 
Well, actually, as someone who's both a child and as someone, I know that this is true. I'm sure that it takes a lot of work sometimes to love me. A lot of perseverance, a lot of kind of strength of character. Because um, I, I know that I'm not always easy to love. I know that none of us are, but I am loved and I, I'm, I'm lucky to be. And so, so he says, teach the, the younger women to, to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure. Um, two more great ways to stand out from those around you, to have restraint on your tongue. Now, the word pure there, that, that kind of word group is, suggests probably pure in the realm of sex, not um, flirty or provocative or unfaithful, but pure. And then uh, to be busy at home and to be kind and to be subject to their husbands. Those are kind of uh, tricky ones in some ways for me to, to preach. To, um, the, fra- the phrase busy at home, uh, it's not a question of whether to be a full-time mother or not. That wasn't even a, a question that people had in those days. But ra- I, th- I think it's helpful to see the alternative. In, in Timothy where women were going around um, home to home being busy bodies rather than busy themselves, interested in everyone else's responsibilities and interested in everyone else's business, but not taking responsibility for their own. And next, uh, to, be, to be kind, not harsh in their speech, but not, not cutting, but kind. To say, here's a, here's a wife and mother who is kind. There's something beautiful about that. And finally, um, when he says subject to their own husbands, we spent a lot of time on this last year, so you can go back and listen if you want to know kind of what it looks like in a Christian household. Um, but for, for what it looks like for a husband and wife to, to lay down their lives for one another in, in their own kind of ways, as, as members with equal dignity, but kind of different roles in the family. But the, the implication here, as we keep reading, is that um, if a young woman followed these things, then he seems to think that no one will have anything any reason to malign the word of God. That's how, that's how he finishes that section. So that no one will malign the word of God. That is to say that the Christian life lived out would be beautiful. They would see her kindness, her love for her family, her purity and, and all of that and would see the goodness of Christianity played out. And now, um, when he finally comes to the young man, he's very brief with them. He has just one instruction, uh, that they be self-controlled. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. And we're going to spend a bit, a bit of time on this later, but it's a curious one to, to wonder just how much is summed up in that one command. I've got just one quote for you. Um, Bishop Ellicott says, um, in this pregnant word, a young man's duty is simply but comprehensively enunciated. Um, it's worth kind of reflecting just, uh, you know, what would it look like to um, live out self-control? Why, why is that the focus for him? We'll come back to that. Uh, but finally, we, we've got, we have two more cases to look at. It, in, we've had the four main groups summarized. Notice that everyone fits into one of these categories. Everyone here in this room is either older or younger, man or woman. Um, everyone in his church would have been older or younger, man or woman. He could stop there, having spoken to everyone in the room, but he chooses to address two more special cases. And the first is to Titus himself. Uh, from verse 7, it changes from they to you. So read with me there. He says, In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned. As my Father's Day gift last, last year, I, I, I love this verse. I came across it as I was uh, in my quiet times, and I, <clears throat> um, I asked Sophie and Abby to, to make me a painting of the verse. 
So Arby did some kind of blue and green watercolor splodges, and Sophie overlaid it with this verse in, in kind of gold text, and it sits above my computer monitor at my desk. Um, so I, I think it gives me kind of um, motivation for how to be, how I want to teach, who I want to be. Um, I've spent a bit of time reflecting on those words over the last year, since Father's Day last year, and I'll, I'll tell you where I've landed. But, but who is this for? Um, it's addressed to Titus, but the principles are about how to teach and lead. And so who leads and teaches in our church? Well, it's the staff team, but also the small group leaders, the Sunday kids teams, Spark, Ignite, Boys Club Ablaze. These principles help anyone who, who leads or teaches in some way to work out how to do that in a way that is marked by grace and distinct from the world around them. Um, read with me again from verse 9. Uh, first question is, how, how should you lead? Sorry, verse 7, my bad. It says, in everything, set them an example by doing what is good. Now, that's important. More than being a good teacher, I want to be good and godly in my own life. More than having great, engaging speakers in kind of kids and youth ministries and all our teaching ministries around church, we want people who are, are good models in their own life. It's a, it makes a powerful impact when Christian leaders eminently live out their beliefs. You may have heard the name Tim Keller. He was a, he's a pastor, he was a pastor from New York who passed away a couple of weeks ago. And he was a renowned preacher and teacher. I've benefited lots from kind of listening to him. But the theme that came up again and again in tributes and obituaries over the last couple of weeks was the consistency of his life, the integrity with which he lived. Those who worked closely with him said that he was always so gentle and supportive and, and while being passionate and hardworking. His family spoke about his kind of integrity in all things. Even kind of secular New York columnists who interacted with him emphasized the, the striking integrity with which he interacted. How they experienced his trustworthiness and his truthfulness, even if they disagreed with him in significant ways. Uh, Trillia Newbell wrote, uh, kind of summed up what she'd read, kind of looking at the different tributes, she said, some repeated themes I've seen in our tributes about Tim Keller are that he was approachable, humble, kind, gentle, and generally interested in others. He was eager to listen. He wasn't entitled, haughty, or proud. Now, it's interesting what's missing from that list. This is a man who's renowned for his teaching and preaching, a, a great academic, a, a best-selling author, but those were the themes that really struck people when they looked back at his life his life, his life spoke of truth, spoke the truth of his words. It makes a powerful impact when Christian leaders eminently live out their beliefs, which leads kind of pretty closely to the next thing. He says, in your teaching, show the th three things. Um, the first is integrity. Now, before we look at that, though, I, uh, what, what do you look for in teaching? What did you hope to hear when you came to church today? I wonder um, what that might be. Something uh, challenging, something inspiring, something short. <laughs> um, hopefully not. Hopefully you're, you're ready to be kind of, to engage in God's word. Part of the reason I ask is because this, this verse, like one of the reasons I wanted it above my desk is because is it surprised me when I read through. I naturally want my teaching to be you know, I mean, naturally, to be engaging and interesting and well-received and, and challenging. Um, I don't naturally lean towards, towards these qualities here. 
And so it's kind of worth just reflecting on, on these. So first, integrity. That's kind of closely re related to, the, to a life that lines up. But when it comes to teaching, what does integrity look like? I think it's, it's talking about motive. Last week we learned about the, the false teachers in Crete who were um, teaching for dishonest gain, for what they could get out. And so integrity, to be preaching for the right reasons, for, for pure motives, would be more important than ever there, I think. A second is seriousness. That, that's the one that surprised me the most. Uh, you know, I, 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 it's, I like to be joyful. I, I want to delight in what we're doing together. I think it's good to be able to, to laugh together. So what does it mean for seriousness to be a priority in our teaching? People are taking this a few different ways. Richard Baxter, writing to preachers, says, you cannot break men's hearts by jesting with them. Martin Lloyd-Jones similarly wrote, I cannot understand a jocular evangelist. And yet again and again, we're told to delight in the Lord when we come together, to rejoice. And so the Bible's certainly not anti-joy or anti-fun. It's, it's not wrong to laugh together as we learn. Instead, I think the point is, I want you to see that I take this very seriously. It's good to joke together, but this is no joke. It's important for teachers to be able to, to show that, that they take what they're saying seriously. And so integrity and seriousness and third, soundness of speech that cannot be condemned. That's that word again, sound speech, speech that is holistically good, no part of it off kilter or untruthful or not matching up. And we, we, last week, the, the opponents in Crete were characterized by their meaningless talk. But the Christian leader ought to have soundness in their speech that cannot be condemned. So that those who oppose them will have nothing bad to say. That's, that's an interesting phrase. Notice that there, there will be opposition. People will oppose the ideas that are taught, but they'll find themselves with nothing bad to say. That there's, there's no kind of inconsistencies. That, that there's been such care put into the words that though they might oppose it, they can't actually condemn it. So we've covered five out of six. Uh, finally, Paul turns to the other end of the spectrum, where, where, where Titus is appointed to a, a position of respect as a leader, a teacher, and a model. Um, he then turns to slaves. In the Roman Empire, slaves were those who, who, in society, demanded the least respect. And yet, they too are taught to, to see the importance of their example, of, of showing their trustworthiness. I, there's probably lots I could say about how the Bible approaches slavery, but it's, it's a side note here. But please come and chat to me if you kind of, if it raises questions for you, how the Bible approaches slave, slavery. But the important thing to see is that um, it's, yeah, it's interesting to see Paul does not tell Titus to end slavery. He does not tell slaves to rebel and uprise. And rather, he, he, he tells them how to be godly in the context they find themselves. And in some ways, that's kind of the, the first question for them is, is, how do I be godly in the context that I've found myself? No one wanted to be a slave, and, and slaves were actually renowned for, for being disobedient and disrespectful of anything but brute force in the Roman Empire. And so it would be a striking thing to see a slave who, who respects his master, who works conscientiously to please him, who, who doesn't try to steal or, or doesn't talk back. But even a slave, even the least respected in society, ought, ought to show their trustworthiness so that they would stand out among their peers, so that this Christianity is not just another among the religions, but that, that it changes people for the better. That's why it finishes with, um, with that, that reason for them to show that they're trustworthy, so that in every way, they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive.
And so there we have it. Those are the six groups for Titus to, to teach how to live their doctrine out. It's just a brief glimpse of, of what it looks like to be marked by grace, to begin to put into practice these great and wonderful truths. Before we finish, I just want to make two comments kind of looking back over the themes that run throughout them all. I want to pick up on two things in particular um, that, that keep popping up. Firstly, did you notice what attribute came up almost every time, young or old, man or woman, self-control came up again and again. The only group that weren't explicitly told uh, it were, were older women, but I think to tell them not to be slanderers, not to be addicted to much wine, that, kind of, that takes self-control. And of course, when it comes to the young men, women, uh, young men, that was their only instruction. I think Crete was similar to our world in, in, a, in a sense, in, in, that it, in the way that it said, have everything you want when you want it. Certainly in our world, characterized by instant gratification, by impulsive behavior, um, self-control has got to be key in our pursuit of godliness. And it, and it, I think, is emphasized as well because it is a beautiful thing when someone is self-controlled. It stands out, doesn't it? It, it might not be if, you know, if someone who had never been tempted could exercise self-control, but, but when someone goes against their grain or goes against the grain of those around them, when everyone else is, um, you know, slandering their, their bosses or their husbands or their friends and, and one, one person holds their tongue and, and speaks res- with respect and honor and love, or when you know that someone really passionately desires something but they fight against it, that stands out, that, that shows everyone around them that there's something worth, worth um, being self-controlled for. That's a beautiful thing when, when someone is self-controlled. And the, the, the second thing, uh, kind of theme that runs throughout them is the word, so that. Three times Paul gives a reason for what they do. Take a look with me at, uh, they'll come up on the screen as well. Um, at the end of verse 5, why should the, the young women do all this? So that no one will malign the word of God. In verse 8, why should te- Titus teach and act this way? so that those who oppose you might be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. And finally, in verse 10, why should the, the slaves put such an effort into showing that they can be trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive? What's going on there? What's the common thread that ties those together? It's, it's that um, your life matters. Your life speaks, uh, speaks the, the, the truthfulness of the truth that you believe. What is it about, what is it that is going to let the beauty of the gospel show? It's your life. If, if Christianity is beautiful, um, how can we kind of wear the right clothes, get the right hairstyle to show that it is beautiful? Well, it's, it's by living in light of the doctrine that we believe. Because your, your life matters in the church as we help one another to live out our faith. Your life matters in your family, it matters in your workplace, at the pub, at the shops, as we show the goodness of what we believe by how we live. Because good doctrine not only leads to good practice, but good practice affirms and adorns good doctrine. Like we saw at the start, the number one thing that people who are warm to to Christianity say attracts them to it is seeing people live out a genuine faith. And that's not a surprise to us because we're told here in the Bible that that's, that's what will happen when we live out our faith um, we will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. Now, that's not our motive, ultimately. As, as we keep reading, we'll see next week kind of what drives us to godliness. We'll see that it's the grace of God, 
that teaches us to say no to ungodliness. It's not kind of by trying to look really good to other people. But it, is, but it is an important result. When we live as we should, our lives affirm and adorn the beliefs that we profess. Because the Christian life, when everything is as it should be, is living proof of the goodness of the gospel. So just imagine, sometime this week, someone looked at, at your life. Uh, they, they kind of saw the way that you interacted with others. They saw how you spent your time. And they came to the conclusion that Christianity is beautiful. Wouldn't that be great? By the kindness that you showed, or the love, or the dignity, or the maturity, or the way that your family interacted. That's a really beautiful trait, and, and, it's, and it's because they're Christian. That would be a wonderful observation for someone to make. And so I'm going to pray now that, um, that our lives would adorn and affirm the truths that we believe. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, we thank you for the grace that has appeared that offers salvation to all people, that teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do, to do what is good. So we pray that we would be eager to do what is good, that, that your grace would teach us to say no to ungodliness. We pray that we would live, live such good, good lives that uh, sh eminently show the goodness of, of what we believe. We pray all this in your name. Amen.